You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, hosting this week, and with me are Craig Jarvis and Lauren Horsch here at the News and Observer offices in Raleigh, and from our Washington Bureau, Brian Murphy, on the phone. Uh, We'll talk about the 9th District, where we had a court hearing that allowed the investigation of election fraud allegations to go forward, and we'll talk about what's on tap for session as lawmakers get started next week. Um, First of all, in the 9th, Brian Murphy, the hearing in front of a judge was to determine whether uh, Mark Harris would be able to uh, have his win uh, certified and go forward uh, or whether the election would go on and the election is going to go on. Um, So uh, what was your impression from listening into that hearing? Yeah, there was a court hearing in Wake County Superior Court where the Harris campaign asked that the judge compel the the executive director of the state board to certify the election. Um, That would have given Harris his certification. He would have been able to come up to Congress and um, try to get seated in the U.S. House where Democrats have sort of said that they're not going to seat him. So but it would have at least moved the story out of North Carolina. The judge um, decided that he did not have that authority, and the fact that there will be a new state board on January 31st compelled him to just remand it back to the to the state board to figure out whether or not they want to certify the election of Harris in the 9th District. Um, the new board is coming together. Um, Josh Malcolm, who sort of initiated this entire investigation uh, as a previous member of the board, will not be on the board. Uh, Republicans and Democrats have to submit uh, a few candidates to the governor, and Roy Cooper will pick uh, the five-member board. And that board is supposed to get come together, be sworn in on January 31st, and then they will set a date, uh, presumably, for another evidentiary hearing in the 9th District. And this will stretch into at least the middle of February before we get any resolution. Brian, you wrote about uh, an interesting dynamic in this investigation, which is that uh, McCray Dallas, who... A lot of people who've been listening probably know is the person of interest in this investigation. Um, it seems to be under suspicion for mishandling absentee ballots. Um, has this long-running, uh, I don't know, feud is too strong a word, but has a long-running um, relationship uh, on again, off again, uh, uh, feud, I guess, with um, another figure in this uh, in Bladen County. Jens Lutz. Um, Tell us a little bit about uh, Lutz and Dallas and how this really goes back nine years. Right. We've talked so much about what happened in the 2018 election uh, in Bladen County and and neighboring Robeson County. Um, But what our reporting has has sussed out and, and not just our reporting, but reporting around the state is that this feud, this, the, these arguments over elections in Bladen County, uh, these disputes go back at least until 2010, as do investigations into these disputes. So what we found in our reporting is that in 2010, Jens Lutz, who um, at one point served on the Bladen County Board of Elections, uh, is a Democratic operative and has worked for Democratic candidates. At one point in 2010, Jens Lutz uh, filed a complaint with the State Board of Election about the about McRae Dallas and, and alleged that he was buying votes and driving um, uh, driving voters to the polls and that he was paying those people. Um, 
the state board investigated and investigated for a long time. Uh, they, they brought in the State Bureau of Investigation, and uh, nothing really ever came of it. But uh, Jens Lutz, who at that time the election was a, a Democratic primary for sheriff, so that gives you a sense of um, you know how granular these disputes are. I mean, that, that was a, a Democratic primary for sheriff in Bladen County, and it led to a long, long investigation by. Um, you know, officials across the state from the State Bureau of Investigation and made it all the way um, up to the to the attorney general's office um, over this complaint of vote buying in the 2010 uh, in the 2010 Democratic primary for sheriff. Uh, both McCray Dallas and Jens Lutz were working for Democratic candidates, different Democratic candidates at the time. Um, and, and it, you know, if you follow this path, Lutz and Dallas eventually became partners in 2014. Um, that that partnership dissolved uh, very quickly. Lutz says that it was only for him to be able to find out the tactics that Dallas was using. Of course, we have not been able to talk to Dallas about about much of anything when it comes to this investigation, including going back to 2010 and, and 2014. But in 2018, we'll fast forward. Lutz is one of the people who was reaching out to the state board. He's filed an affidavit uh, claiming all kinds of malfeasance on, on part of the board and on part of McCray Dallas. Um, of course, McCray Dallas is a person of interest in this. So some of the central figures in, in the 2018 dispute over the Mark Harris-Dan McCready race have a long-running feud dating at least back to 2010 uh, over voting and election tactics in Bladen County. And we're expecting to get appointees for the new um, board uh, in the next few days, right? So we should know more about who's going to be serving uh, on the board when it uh, takes effect January 31st and when, uh, and then we'll know soon after that when they might be able to uh, actually have some kind of a hearing in this case that would let us give us more details about uh, what's going on in the investigation. Right. And, and so we'll figure sometime in February, you know, by the time the new board gets settled in and, and has an evidentiary hearing and um, I imagine this uh, the this will not be the last time we talk about NC9 on, on this podcast or you read it about it at the newsandobserver.com because um, th- this may drag on for months, uh, particularly if a new election is ordered. But you know, as as it stands, even though Congress is not doing much of anything given the government shutdown, uh, the the re- the citizens and the voters of North Carolina nine do not have a representative in in the new Congress. Uh, real quick about the shutdown. Uh, what are you seeing from North Carolina's delegation? Are they playing any kind of significant role on this, particularly Senator Tillis, who's uh, up for re-election? Yeah, what's interesting is uh, by the time you hear this, the, the votes will probably have taken place, um, the votes to reopen the government in the Senate, uh, one on the Trump proposal, one on a Democratic counterproposal that would just reopen the government until February 8th. Senator Tillis plans to vote against the, the Democratic proposal, and I don't believe enough Democrats are going to vote for the president's proposal. Um, although this may indicate that there, there is some breakthrough, that, that at least they're negotiating, at least they're, they're having some votes. What's interesting, particularly about Tillis, uh, what will be interesting to watch in the vote is that some vulnerable Republicans, uh, particularly Cory Gardner in Colorado, that are up for re-election in 2020, may decide to vote uh, with the Democrats and, and try to open the government um, right away and, and give a short extension, uh, allowing all these federal workers to get paid and set up another another border crisis, another another funding crisis in February. Um, Cory Gardner has said he's going to vote for that. 
Um, it will be interesting to see what other Republicans go along with that, uh, whether it's more moderate Republicans or whether it's Republicans who are up in 2020 and whether they've decided with the president's approval rating down to 34 percent in the latest Associated Press poll that maybe they need to create some distance with the president. Right now, Senator Tillis, who is up in 2020 and, and drew a, uh, at least one challenger from Charlotte, uh, Trevor Fuller, who's on the Mecklenburg County uh, Board of Commissioners, um, It'll be interesting to see if Senator Tillis at some point feels the pressure of 2020 and, and the low approval ratings for the president and begins to, to create some separation there. Uh, but it does not appear that's going to happen this week. OK. And meanwhile, with things uh, apparently not functioning at all down there, this uh, several members of the delegation have felt like this is a good time to propose term limits uh, for uh, members of Congress. You wrote about that this week as well. Uh, some seem to be kind of playing off the gridlock and dysfunction down there and said, uh, uh, you know, if you basically if you can't get uh, things done, maybe you shouldn't allow people in Congress to serve indefinitely. Yeah, I think, you know, it, Congress is not very popular. Term limits are very popular. So congressmen are proposing uh, lots of term limit um, bills. Now, uh, in order to change um, term limits for Congress, it would require a change in the Constitution. And we all know how difficult it is to amend the Constitution, but that's what it would require to put in constitutional term limits, thanks to a, a 1995 ruling by the Supreme Court. George Holding, a, a representative from Raleigh, um, who ran on term limits during his latest reelection, uh, filed a bill. Uh, Senator Tillis is on a, a resolution in the Senate. Uh, several other members of the delegation are different bills in the House. Um, I don't think this has a chance of going anywhere, but I do think it's it's a way for Republicans in this in this case to express their sort of disgust at the way that Washington is working. Holding's rationale is that, uh, you know, like good journalists, I guess, um, Congress people need a deadline in order to act. And uh, by putting on term limits, uh, as soon as you got to Congress, you'd be compelled to try to start getting things accomplished, start uh, making some deals with with people on the other side of the aisle. Uh, as we've seen with the government shutdown, sometimes uh, deadlines come and go, and, and that doesn't even compel Congress to act. Thanks, Brian. I know you have to run to the Hill, so we will see you later, but thanks for the update from D.C. Appreciate it. Thanks. And we're going to turn our attention to the upcoming session. Uh, next week, we get uh, lawmakers back in Raleigh. Uh, for another long session, and uh, Lauren and Craig, interested to know what you think uh, we can expect um, from this session. Craig, you're writing a session preview type story right now and focusing on the new power dynamics in the legislature and uh, between the legislature and Roy Cooper. So tell us a little bit about what's going to be different this year. Yeah, there's a lot of speculation about that. I mean, we've certainly had a, a, a political power shift with the general election, the Republicans, although they still have a majority, lost their veto-proof majorities in both chambers. This transfers a lot of uh, power to the governor. He can have a bigger say in things. They can't ignore him uh, like they did in the past. Um, what that means is, uh, is a little unclear. People have a lot of different ideas about what that's, what's that going to mean. Uh, I talked to Senator Berger <coughs> this week who uh, said that uh, yeah, we're going to have to be more conciliatory. We're going to have to listen. They're going to have to listen, but we're going to have to work together more. But he was also saying Democrats are going to have a new burden, which is they can't be on the fringes appealing to what he said was their, you know, their base, their uh, the more extreme elements. 
So what does the new divided power mean for actually getting things done in the legislature, like a state budget, which is their main job for this coming year? Yeah, this is their uh, main job for this coming year. Uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. I think one of the big uh, tests will be Medicaid. That seems to be something that uh, Medicaid expansion seems to be something everybody's talking about. People are expecting it. I think Tim Moore has said <coughs> so. There'll be some kind of bill <coughs> that will uh, that will get that thing rolling. <coughs> rolling. And when I talked to uh, Majority Leader in the House, John Bell, I asked him about Medicaid expansion, and he said they hadn't set their policies for what they're looking at this year or what they want to target policy-wise, but he said they were going to put all healthcare-related policy on the table as a caucus and decide from there. So we very well could see it, but, I mean, as Craig said, the budget's going to be the biggest thing we need to do. It's going to take up a chunk of our time this year. And I'm hearing from a lot of lobbyists and a lot of operatives, they're worried that we might not be able to pass a budget. Um, and it, in North Carolina, we won't shut down if a budget doesn't get passed. We have a law on the books that says that the government, if we don't pass the budget, then it's just funded at the same level as the previous fiscal year. And our budget's doing fine right now. Everything is funded the way it should, but we won't get to do some additional funding for other things um, like new school buildings or uh, pet projects for downtown revitalization. So we'll see different. We won't be able to get a lot of that pork in there as most people would want. I had heard that rumor too, and I asked uh, Berger about that. I talked with him this week, <coughs> and he said that he thought that it would. Uh, he didn't think that was was on anybody's agenda. He he acted a little innocent, like he hadn't really heard that before. He said it's certainly not my intention or members' intention to uh, not pass a budget. You know, that's both constitutional and does what it, what needs to be done. Uh, just politics aside, every year they need to do. There are tweaks that have to happen, and then there's kind of baseline things that have to happen. Uh, Medicaid falls into the budget in that um, everybody seems to be for some kind of movement, except Berger was not in committal. He said, I still haven't seen a plan that doesn't so severely cut into the budget in, you know, for subsequent years that, um, you know, that it becomes unaffordable or something else gets crowded out. How do we pay for teacher raises? How do we pay for infrastructure? Uh, and, you know, take on what, has, what in the past years was a real uh, debt-ridden program. And that's been his response on Medicaid <coughs> for months, yeah. I think maybe even years. He's just echoed the same sentiment. So. Uh, redistricting is another thing that I've heard will come up, some, some form of nonpartisan redistricting. It's certainly fresh on everybody's uh, minds with the District 9 uh, fiasco, and uh, you know that, that's a possibility. Taxes, there could be some kind of movement on taxes. Uh, Republicans go into this session kind of uh, crowing about their accomplishments on the economic front with low un unemployment, uh, a big surplus in revenue was announced uh, just this week, I believe. Uh, so they're saying, you know, more of the same. Uh, there was some talk of a franchise tax cut. Uh, uh, so I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I don't know if there's any social issues that might come up so much. I mean, I think they... <coughs> I haven't heard much on social social issues yet and again there's still i don't know if the democratic caucus has met yet either uh to discuss what they want for policy but it's really up in the air right now we don't know what we're going to get we're kind of guessing you know here here's been the big topics previous years are they going to tackle those big topics again this session you know, it's going to be a grab bag of fun, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> we have no idea. It is. And I heard from the Democrats, too, that they uh, 
one thing that remains to be seen is how well does the Democratic caucus hold together. Uh, if they can't support the governor's vetoes, then it doesn't really matter that they have this, uh, <coughs> this advantage that they had over previous years. So that really remains to be seen, too. And another note on the budget, um, going back a few minutes, is in the House specifically, we lost uh, Nelson Dollar, who was the chief budget writer in the House. He lost his reelection bid here in Wake County. Uh, he is still going to be around the General Assembly. He's actually going to be working on the Speaker's staff. He'll be making over $117,000. Uh, but we don't exactly know what he's going to do. Our very educated guess will be he will help with budget issues. Um, but the Appropriations Committee uh, will now have three senior chairmen, uh, Representative Jason Sane uh, from Lincoln County, Representative Linda Johnson from Cabarrus County, and Representative Donnie Lambeth. Uh, from Forsyth County, so, and Lambeth is involved in a lot of um, healthcare issues, and uh, Representative Johnson does a lot with education. Uh, so we're going to see, I think, you know, those are two big things we might see out of this budget from the House side. And one other thing that uh, is being talked about in the House is uh, some kind of a school bond referendum. Tim Moore, uh, the House Speaker, would like to put a referendum on the ballot in 2020, and the legislature would have to vote this year. Uh, to put that on the ballot. And um, we don't know if there's appetite for that from the Senate side. They've been very hush-hush about it. Uh, so the, the House is very gung-ho about it. They're doing a statewide tour at the moment. They were just in Harnett County last week touring a very old school, I think built in the 40s, um, that hadn't been upgraded. Uh, so you saw, again, Linda Johnson there with Speaker Moore and um, leaders from Harnett County, including the school board, and then David Lewis, who's the rules chair. So we'll see if the Senate buys into that. I'm thinking that might be, uh, I mean, I'm th that reminds me of uh, McCrory, I think, wanted to do a, a big infra infrastructure funding, and I think the House was pretty enthusiastic about it, and the Senate wasn't, and that was stripped out of, the, uh, out of that particular proposal. A few other things that uh, have been uh, of interest to our readers anyway, um, we asked people what they want the legislature to work on in this coming session and what the most important issue is facing the legislature. And people did tend to say Medicaid expansion. Um, we also got a lot of responses, um, not surprisingly considering uh, that a lot of these questions were uh, right around stories about the ninth district problems, that election oversight and security was a big issue. Um, the third one, which, Craig, you mentioned was redistricting voting rights. You've got two different court decisions that potentially, uh, two different court cases that potentially the legislature might need to wade into related to gerrymandering. Um, and then some people interested in um, the perennial uh, issue of gun control and gun rights. Some Democrats uh, s that uh, Lynn Bonner interviewed saying that um, they're going to renew their push for um, some new gun control measures, including the uh, extreme risk protective orders that would allow courts to temporarily take guns away from people who are considered dangers to themselves and others. And then um, another perennial issue, as, as we just talked about, is, uh, is public education, and there will be a lot of um, debates around, around that. Lynn talked to um, one lawmaker, Senator Jerry Tillman, who had said he wants to talk about maybe changing the ways um, schools are scored on the A to F grades that have, that have gotten a lot of complaints about how they're calculated, and he'd like to take another look at that. So that may be another area. And of course, uh, there will be talk uh, about salaries for teachers and uh, state employees. 
last year, um, state employees got a, a raise, a lot of them, to $15 an hour minimum wage. Some were left out uh, of that $15 an hour minimum wage. Uh, others, state, the State Employees Association has stressed that uh, some people are making just a little bit above that and now are making very similar amounts to um, some employees who've now been boosted up to $15. And um, there may be a need to look at some of the people who are just a little bit over that, even though maybe they've been there for a very long time and now they're just making a bit more than the, uh, the minimum wage for state employees. Um, so a lot of different things that, uh, that could come up in the session. Um, anything else that you guys are hearing about that uh, we should watch for uh, as it goes on? Well, you mentioned 2020. I think in the background of all this is going to be a lot of 2020 stage setting, and uh, that means the governor is running for re-election next year, and there'll, there'll be a lieutenant governor uh, competition. And uh, lieutenant governor's race is already yeah. up. We have Senator Terry Van Dyne, who's a Democrat from Asheville, throwing her hat in. Representative Chas Beasley from Mecklenburg County, also a Democrat, is thinking about it. Um, I know there's at least one Republican in the race, too, and we have so many more people who are exploring their options. And the reason we're getting all these announcements already is because the 2020 primary has moved up. We're now on Super Tuesday, so you'll see a 2020 primary mm -hmm. in March, mm -hmm. which I am just trying to wrap my head around very, very much so because mm. I'm coming I, – I, you know, I lived in Iowa during caucuses, so I'm used to a first-of-the-nation caucus, but – it's going to be. <laughs> it's going to be brutal, and uh, one of the uh, one of the issues too is uh, that jumping back to that theory about the uh, their inability to pass a budget is there could simply be a lot of grandstanding uh, if there if there isn't a lot of impetus to come together and and resolve a budget issue if the budget's going to kind of resolve itself, and so there'll be a lot of you know pot shots at, at the governor and um, you know we'll see that kind of gamesmanship okay all right well i think we'll take a break and come back with headliner of the week stay with us headliner of the week 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 who's hot welcome back to domecast and now it's time for a head-to-head Headliner of the week, just two of you here, Craig Jarvis and Lauren Horsch. Uh, who will win? Craig Jarvis, who's your headliner of the week? I'm going to say federal workers. We're now into what, um, a month? Is that possible? Like 34 days. 34 so, days, yeah. more than a month of, uh, of the shutdown. And uh, some are working without pay, some are uh, working, uh, not working without pay. But uh, we're not seeing a whole lot of movement uh, unless somebody pulls a rabbit out of the hat today. So federal workers. All right, federal workers. We've had some uh, coverage in the NNO about uh, some of the different uh, groups and businesses that are helping federal workers. And uh, so if you... The TSA has been very vocal. So if you are flying through RDU or anywhere, just be sure to thank your TSA agents for trying to keep you safe when they're not getting paid. Uh, and so uh, you can look on newsobserver.com for a story that uh, lists some of the different people who are helping out, uh, if you're interested in that. Lauren Horsch, who's your headliner of the week? Mine is kind of related to Craig's, only because um, there's just been a lot of back and forth about the State of the Union during the government shutdown. Uh, uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi 
disinvited Trump, and then Trump said, no, I'm going to give this address in Congress anyway, and then Pelosi again said, no, you're not. And so Trump is not going to give the State of the Union on the 29th as planned. Um, because of that, uh, our speaker, uh, Tim Moore, actually invited Trump to come to North Carolina and to deliver his address that he would have delivered before Congress. Um, and there is a little bit of precedent. Bill Clinton, when he was president, did come and do a joint uh, session of the General Assembly. I don't remember what he was talking about. I was not in North Carolina, nor was I old enough to care about politics at the time. Uh, but it was just kind of a nice little thing Speaker Moore did. It's unclear if uh, President Trump will take him up on the offer. Uh, Trump did, however, call Moore, I think, over the weekend and said, you know, thank you for the invite. It's nice of you to think about me and other things that politicians talk about when they call each other up. Uh, so it's just kind of funny. So um, Speaker Moore's invite to President Trump to do the State of the Union from North Carolina. That's my headliner. All right. Okay. Well, uh, as much as I would uh, love for our politics coverage for um, President Trump to be in the House of Representatives in North Carolina um, to give the State of the Union, uh, I'm going to go with federal workers. And um, we've had a lot of uh, stories lately about the impact on federal workers um, as this now drags into uh, 35th, 36th day of government shutdown. I'm, I've lost track at this point. Um, we, we do have some, uh, uh, some stories about how, for instance, some of them who are working won't be able to get unemployment and uh, you know other difficulties that uh, the federal workers are going through. Some I saw are um, having to take side jobs uh, and that presents its own difficulties because you can't compete, you can't uh, do things that uh, conflict with your federal job. Some, some are driving Uber, some are driving Lyft, or doing other jobs in the gig economy. A lot um, of them have been are kind of invisible, but it's the TSA workers, I think, that kind of round a corner in the public perception. They yes, up, yeah. and air traffic controllers. Right, yeah, right. the most stressful possible job, right. and yeah. um, you're not being paid. Add on top of that, TSA, right. uh, uh, I'd say, is pretty stressful too. The but. Sure, and, and Butner, as Craig reported, Butner uh, Prison, other federal prisons, their workers not being paid, um, still working. So another extremely stressful job where you're, uh, um, you have enough to deal with, um, with understaffed, uh, often understaffed prisons. So um, federal workers, uh, do you remember how many there are in, in, uh, out there? 7,000, somewhere around yeah. 7,000. Yeah, in North Carolina. Right. So. All right, well, our headliner of the week is federal workers, so Craig is our winner this week in the head-to-head -head headliner. Better luck next time, Lauren. Uh, and Even with lower odds. <laughs> <laughs> You've won many times with, uh, with higher odds. Yeah, thanks for the tip. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so for Craig Jarvis and Lauren Horsch and Brian Murphy on the phone, I'm Jordan Schrader, and that's it for Domecast. Please catch us next time. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.